0: Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-around wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net.
1: Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and my guest this week is Robin Shea. Robin, what's your title at Allegheny?
2: Export manager. Has been the same for the last 15 years, too. But it
1: seems like you do so much more. So the the way I would ask the question is, how does a a California kid end up living in Napa and working for an Italian winery and speaking five languages? Can you tell me that in 60 seconds?
2: (laughs) Very simply, my mother's British. And so uh, she looked at my uh, college uh, list of universities I was interested in applying to and realized that there was a very similar overlay to the Playboy Party Report. (laughs) and said.
1: (laughs) Party schools of of the Big Ten, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you may want to think about not going into debt for that particular objective. And I had a passport at the time and the European Union, uh, which I consider just a fantastic project and one that I really hope stays alive. um, At that time was coming together. I ended up getting a a degree from the University of Madrid and there was a program called the Erasmus program, which was fantastic to encourage uh, cultural kind of interchange in between the countries of the EU. I was able to take advantage of that. I ended up living in Europe 11 years, I have a degree from a Spanish university. I lived in Spain for four years. I lived in Portugal for two, I lived in Italy for seven. And during that time, I I was, you know, from the Napa Valley. So I kind of would fall back on summer gigs that had to do with, you know, making wine in the Douro Valley or harvesting in Bordeaux or making wine in Southern Italy. And uh, eventually, you know, I fell in love with with Italy and and the culture, and and I have stayed uh, close to to what kind of keeps me keeps me energized.
1: I find that you know in in Napa everybody's head is all about California, you know, the Sierra Gap and, and all that kind of stuff. And your Italian wine is there a disconnect there, or am I misreading something?
2: You know, it was. I, I'll tell you the story. I, I was making wine in Southern Italy, and I was really and to give you an idea, it's I. California wine, you know, there's a lot about making of wine, uh, the technical terroir. And I really appreciate that because here it's a new world. It's an it's an area of discovery. So you could talk for a very long time about philosophies of oak aging. And uh when I tried to do that in Italy, I remember the guy I was working for said, ah, Robin, I hope you're in a Californian guy, just wants to talk about the oak and the wine. He said, Here in Italy, you know, wine is to help us talk about, you know poetry and culture and cuisine and history. And at the very end of a meal, after we've touched all the subjects and had a good time, it's only at that point when the bottle's finished that you ask, what was that wine?
1: (laughs) I love that story. it is very true.
2: (laughs) So, and that that was the sort of thing I remember as as a kid from California, I mean, the, the first text I was given when I was still making wine was to read was the odyssey by homer he said start here you know try to <laughs> try to wrap your head around really and that and i had some great mentors in that regard probably not professionally speaking so much but i've had some wonderful mentors from a humanistic standpoint that's why i still work in italian wine
1: tell me a little bit about Allegrini and its presence in the u.s and what it is in italy and, and what that means here
2: uh, so allegrini is a seven generation family endeavor uh, rooted in the Valpolicella. So this is uh, Northern Italy, the Veneto, of course. Uh, everything that Allegrini does is uh, state produced. So they're farmers first and foremost, and they're winemakers um, after that. And it's been really one of the secrets to their, their success is controlling quality. They're also innovators. So despite these very uh, deep roots, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, they, they really look to innovate and kind of have tradition play an important role in terms of a background, but they, they are the protagonists in the play that they are developing. And like many, Franco Allegreni and his father before him, Giovanni Allegreni, really questioned local viticultural techniques, aging regimen, and clonal selection, uh, along with establishing single vineyards from their own estates. Uh, and it kicked off really a cultural, Quality revolution in Navalpolicella. The, the estate was the first to uh, use the Guyot production technique, which actually lowers yields per vine and therefore, you know, in theory concentrates more or shall I say brings you higher quality grapes with more flavor. Uh, they were the first to, to implement that in Navalpolicella. And, and still to this day, you know, Franco Allegrini was someone who spent in the last 30 years really. Kind of putting a polish on Amarone and really questioning some some of the accepted tradition traditional techniques in order to make a style of wine which was really reflective of our terroir in that it's mineral driven wine, it's a nervy wine, it's a it's a food wine, which I feel like those are, those are those are fundamental elements of Italian wine. And sometimes when you think of Amarone, those aren't the things that come come into your head. You think you know power and sugar and sweet and over the top and oak, but this is not what Allegrini's. Wines are really about a lot of that is because of our land, which is high in calcium, and we produce 100% of our grapes from our own land. But um, also because of this this wonderful approach which Allegrini has had with the wines, and, and right now it's a, it's an incredible moment of transition for the estate. Um, we lost Franco Allegrini earlier this year, right after Vinidly, to cancer, and it was an incredible blow to the family. Uh, today, the estate. Is of course run by Maria Lisa Allegrini, who has been the entrepreneurial energy and the CEO for the last you know thirty plus years, and Franco's sons, who have now moved in to fill his very large shoes. One uh, really dedicating himself to production—that's uh, uh, Giovanni. Uh, the other two viticulture, Matteo, and then Francesco, who's filling out his uh, administrative and business presence at the estate. So there's been the growth has, has not
1: happened in. The Valpolicella area. They, they they bought estates in um, Tuscany and in uh, Montalcino in particular. Why the expansion there, which is so very different than um, Verona or Valpolicella?
2: So we've had we've had oh, wonderful success with Allegri brand in the U.S. and there there has been a growth trajectory, but we've kind of got to a bursting point in the sense that we've. You know, estate production has its limitations and uh, what the family decided to do in order to be able to continue this successful business model of estate produced wines that really had a a, a signature um, on them was to reproduce the same kind of formula, if you will, or look to the same fundamental key success points and replicate them. So one is fantastic terroir. And, and I mean that, you know, from the classic, if you will, New World sense, so wonderful uh, vineyards, uh, producing wine from those vineyards, doing so with an eye on sustainability and producing wines that uh, had very high integrity. So, I mean, they can age that wines that, you know, were very healthy and very clean. And so they replicated that in the year 2000 with Poggio Tesoro in Bulgaria and then in 2007 in Montalcino with an estate called San Polo. And really that was Marilise Allegrini. Marilise Allegrini, like I said, is the entrepreneurial energy behind the estate. And she's the one who really uh, wanted to continue to grow uh, for you know, successive generations, her daughters, namely, Carlotta and Catarina, and, uh, and for generations beyond that. Because when you invest in that, when you're a farmer, first and foremost, you really have to be generational in terms of your approach and amortizing vineyards and making things make sense.
1: What does the name Allegrini on a label mean to consumers
2: in America? Uh, yeah, Allegrini. what I would like it to mean to consumers is uh, an estate that is a legacy. So it's it's a family. It's one of the most highly accoladed in the entire country. Uh, the most trade carries for any Amarone. And Franco was the most highly awarded producer of Amarone in the country. So I hope there's a quality. Um, Understanding that came comes with that legacy. So not only is it is it family, it's quality, but it's also you know estate produced. And and these these are people who really care deeply about uh, the land and the condition which they're leaving it in for the next generation. And if there was a final thing I would say about Allegrini, I love the name. I think it's a great name for a producer because Allegro, of course, you know means Joyous or happy, and and Allegri means little happy people, which I think is a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful image to have in one's head when drinking copious amounts of Italian wine. And um, they're 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 they are they're they're really they're wonderful people, and that's why it, it's been so important for me to kind of work with this family for so long. And they have a real spirit of hospitality. And you've been to the estate, and anybody who's ever had that has can talk about Lisa you know, giving one a tour when she's eight months pregnant at 10 o'clock at night or cooking, you know, pasta, lalio, l'olio at two in the morning for some guests because they're hungry or (laughs) even her father used to, you know. Uh, he was called the barrel spider because at any time, of day and night, people would show up at the estate and he'd crawl up on those huge, big Slavonian casks and start pulling out wine for people to taste. I, I really do think that they bring they bring a lot of joy, and that's that's one of the things that I I, I just think is so wonderfully Italian. I guess. Yeah, I can
1: I can attest to that. I remember once being at um, Allegrini Estate, uh, which is a former Roman domus. Which I was like, how cool is that? And the last thing I remember was. Singing YMCA with a Chinese contingent. It was a great party.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're referring to Maria Lisa's party at Venetoli, which is uh, at Villa la Torre. It's a it's a 15th century estate. It's a, a jewel of the Italian Renaissance, an incredible piece of architecture. But it's really how the Allegrini family make it allegre that that brings life to the villa. And like you say, you know, uh, she's done everything from you know flash mobs of Lyric sopranos from the arena of Verona the Verona Opera Company to karaoke to Japanese monks playing you know, drums in, in this incredible estate and and this party that she does is really her thank you to the wine world every year she does it at in Italy and the vin is for Italy where the entire world shows up and and she's just such a fantastic representative I think of of what it is you know, to be kind of Italian in the wine industry. And it's one of the things that's really carried Marilisa, is that energy, that enthusiasm, that openness.
1: So am I incorrect in saying it was an old Roman domus, an original Roman house?
2: It's designed to look like one. And so oh. it was built in the 15th century and, and it does. I mean, the, the inner courtyard where, we, you know, where we were singing karaoke, that at the end of the day, is is a replica. It actually looks a lot like um, Attia's house in Rome. If you remember the HBO series, it it has it's built with very kind of neoclassical design, and um, it, it, the inspiration was entirely the Roman domus, but it was 15th century.
1: Okay, so we've got that corrected, and, and now I'm disappointed. But you know, 400 years is pretty good, or 500 years. Let's talk a little bit about. Um, home, which is Valpolicella and the 13 families of Amarone. Can you tell me about that and what uh, Allegrini's role is?
2: So, Mari-Lisa was the f- first president of the Amarone families, which I think today is called Le Famiglie Storiche, so the historical families. And it was this idea of kind of protecting the appellation and trying to elevate quality. And that was something, Franco was actually the vice president of the consortium of Valpolicella, which is you know, the one legal body which regulates the rules uh, for the DOC, and uh, he resigned that post because he kind of was in protest, and he um, later, you know, we, we declassified many of our single vineyards out of the Appalachian because of some technicalities that Franco felt very, very strongly about in terms of pushing quality forward and, and really, you know, fast forward. Almost thirty years, the Amarone families was born, or the Famiglia storiche, were born in order to kind of continue that legacy. So the idea that there would be Amarone would be a style of wine which represented the best of an artisan producer's kind of stock, as a and and not something that would be, you know, pushed out into supermarkets at a very low cost. Because, like anything, you know. When you dry grapes for 90 days, there's an artisan process. And I like to think of it almost like making a prosciutto or a parmigiano, right? We all know that craft makes Parmesan. And if you've ever tried it 24 months, you know, aged Parmigiano-Reggiano, you know that those two products have very little to do with one another. Uh, You know, (laughs) there is bologna and then there's (laughs) mortadella, right? Like these are things that don't have a lot to do with one another at the end of the day. And that's really what Amarone's trajectory can be and is, which is there is an industrially produced kind of sweet, cheap version. And then there is a craftsman's, artisan's version. And uh, that's what the Amarone families were really about, the Familia Historia, were really about trying to focus and protect and make sure that there was a clear definition of of really what Amarone can be.
1: Well, let's change the conversation and focus a little bit about um, on-premise and retail. You know, you're talking about these these wines, and I'm not just talking about the Amarone, but pretty much the entire estate-produced line, are not necessarily what people in Europe would call supermarket wines. But it, it's a very different marketplace that you guys are in and uh, developing than what a new-to-the-U.S. brand of an estate-produced wine is. Can you talk about the U.S. market and what are some of the hallmarks of it that a uh, new-to-the-U.S. brand might be discovering that the, the people in the Pellegrini, um company no, by experience.
2: Yeah. And I'll, I'll, pre- I'll preface this, Stephen, you know, like I said, uh, I had some wonderful, I made it a, a, a quip at the beginning of the interview. I said I had wonderful mentors from a humanistic standpoint, perhaps not so much from the professional. And, and I would like to correct that statement. I've worked with great professionals. Maria Lisa Allegren is one of them, but um, I'm just not a very high caliber professional, I feel. So I, I've fallen in love with, um, culture around Italian wine and and the culture of this family. And so that's why I continue to carry the same title that I have for the last 15 years. It's because I really, I love what I do and and I think there's a story to to be told. Over that time, Allegrini brand has grown uh, quite a bit. And so we do have a retail portion of our business, which, you know, we've been recognized with one of our wines six times in the top 100 wines. Of the year from spectator that's something that's never really happened at a, a wine that's 25 bucks on the shelf in, in from any country and so there is a retail uh portion to our business now um what could i say is um for me and for the brand overall i feel like our strength as italian producers are our italian restaurateurs and I, I really feel like it's what energizes and what makes italian wine timeless at the end at the end of the day is is it's it's very very close linked to cuisine and when you when you're linking wine to cuisine in italy you're linking a tradition to history and ultimately you know those are the things that that lead to a, a rich life i feel uh, it's a culture of the table it's about bringing people together and when when you add all of these elements together you know i'm not I, it's not like i figured this out this is this was known 3000 years ago that uh, by socrates before pronouncing upon anything you had to take a big slug of wine and then pass it to your neighbor and then you could speak and so there's something about this this culture of the table which i i think leads to to you know a rich life or it has for me and so that's where i'm focused on and we started working with the gallo family and um with San Polo the trincaro family these are the two largest you know wineries in the world and um uh, one of the things that really attracted us to them was their agricultural roots. So the fact that they are generationally planning as well for their companies, and that's really important because, um, like I say, that's how that's how we view things. And the other thing is that they've started these divisions. One is is called Maize Row or, and or Lux Wines, and it's really focused on taking care of the on premise, and so allowing people to trial and allowing. Our wines to be part of that experience, which is really around the table. And Trincero is doing the same. They're uh, they started. They have a something called the Heritage Wine Division, and um, there are people that are totally on board with this thesis that wine and food and history are all so closely interlinked, and ultimately, you know, can can lead to a very enriching existence. And that's why we're working with uh, the importers that we do because they have the same agricultural uh, background and and now they have these divisions which are are really focused on where I want to be focusing our business, which is the on-premise.
0: Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods.
1: Excellent. I, I One of the lines I came up with was thinking about Italian politics and in, in Italy, nothing works, but everything works out. And, and that's kind of been my experience whenever I'm in Italy. Maybe the restaurant you want to go to isn't open, but the one next door turns out to be fabulous and some very interesting people come by and you, you end up having the most wonderful time. I also think it's the reason, and I do believe this is true, that gelato tastes better in Italy, just like bagels taste better in New York. There's something about it, whether it's the water or the ambiance or some metaphysical thing—I don't know—but at the end of the day, yeah, it's uh, la dolce vita,
2: right? I mean, and 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 one like you cannot understand Lombrusco unless you've had it with mortadella and gnocco frito and, and some parmigiano. Like the wine's reason for being it doesn't really make a ton of sense unless you put it within that context. And so that's what happens so frequently when you're in Italy is that local wine, local foods, millennia of kind of uh, tradition, they it comes together in such an incredible way. So the more that we can be replicating those experiences, the more that we can share those experiences with um, people, you know, like kids from the Napa Valley, the more likely that they'll uh, end up working in Italian wine the rest of their life.
1: Okay, so we've been talking about Allegrini and obviously that's important for both of us for a variety of reasons. But let's turn it over a little bit to uh, Robin Shea. You are know, the export manager. What's your uh, mission and goals and motivation um, given that the podium that Allegrini has in the wine world, both in Italy and, and here in the US, what are your goals for the brand and goals for yourself? I, the way I phrase it sometimes is, "What do you want to be when you grow up?"
2: Yeah, it's a tough. You know, I, I kind of, I guess, in that regard, I've never grown up. And uh, another way of looking at it, I grew up 15 years ago and haven't progressed since. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs>
1: I don't, I don't look at it that way. I, I don't like that one at all.
2: <laughs> I'm a, uh, I'm an export manager, and, and like I say, that's sometimes a very lofty title for me because I, I really follow this, this. Coal inside of me, right? It's it's the it's the idea that I think that there is uh, something that I discovered in Italy, and I love sharing that with people. and, and um, The Allegrini family represents a lot of those values, and um, you know, I, I continue to, to have that be central. To you know, when I talk about the wines, I'm I'm sharing my experience of the wines, but also my experience of the culture, and uh, and 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 how to apply that sometimes in a business context and sometimes on a personal context. Um, you know, what would my goal for the brand be? My My goal for the brand is to continue to place these wines in the context which I feel in which they excel. So uh, around the table with excellent food and food which is which has thoughtfully been sourced, produced, much as our wines are thoughtfully sourced and produced. And in Italy, they say when you're pairing something Il buono sta bene con il buono. And that means what's good is good was what's good, which sounds really stupid, but is when you're talking about uh, sourcing and care and artisanship, I, I feel like they do make sense. I mean, I just paired last, uh, like I was saying before this interview, I, I, I was in Mexico and I paired Palazzo Latore, which is our Rapazzo style wine with a mole made an octopus mole. Uh, in Los Cabos. And it blew my mind. But, you know, the chef is like one of the best chefs in in, in uh, this guy, Enrique Olvera. He's one of the greatest chefs in Mexico. And that pairing blew my mind. And, um, and so I really think there is something to be said for me, finding those moments of marriage of quality and then and then letting the magic happen
1: interesting i i I asked this question of people not on the podcast but just in personal conversation what was your what what was the moment this wine thing kind of came over you and in my case it was came home from new york one one night i was tired it was a hot day um my wife had made lamb chops and i opened a bottle happened to have a bottle of um burgundy won't go into the detail of what but it was magic and it was like, okay, everybody stop talking. <laughs> I want to enjoy this experience. What was your moment when uh, you realized that wine was going to be your future?
2: Oh, man. Obviously,
1: you're closer to it having been in, in Napa. We, you know, we don't.
2: Yeah. See, that's the thing. I kind of grew up with it around. But I, I do remember my mom took me to Smith & Walensky in New York when I was 16. Well, I was 14 years old. And she ordered the Matanzas Creek Shard. I remember it. And I got to have a glass and they were so cool about us. 14 years old, I got to have a glass with, you know, at Smith and Walensky. And it was the first time, you know, you know, the oak and the wine. And it was a long time ago, Steven. Yeah. <laughs> so it's 30 years ago. And I remember being like, whoa, this is really excellent. And, you know, you got butter and the lobster on the table. Like, hell yeah, that's the, that's the sauce right there. You know, I mean, the wine sang. And I remember that was, and I had grown up. Um, in the, you know California, and of course, being exposed to quality, but it was that food and wine, it was that moment that brought me together and then um I really got involved in production, I made wine for a number of years, and I was really not very good at that and uh I remember Franco Allegrini said to me. You know, Robin, your English is better than your winemaking, so you should consider a career in the export department. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> great. And so he said you go work for my sister, so. So, yeah, and uh and but um I've had just so many magical experiences in Italy. Um pairing food and wine and and the, you know, understanding that there absolutely is a, an appropriate moment for, you know, a Lambrusco. And it's the only wine that you'd ever want to drink at, at that p- particular point in time. There's some great examples of people who have done really cool stuff with Lambrusco. And, you know, I looked at the work that Oscar Farinetti doing at Italy, um, you know, even, you know, the, you know, the Bastianich and Batali in their day. And, and, and there are so many other restaurant tours that I've met that have you know taking a lambrusco and and just kind of shaking it up right and 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 kind of push it every once in a while and do so in context and and um yeah in the end i don't know if it's uh, revitalized the category or <laughs> of lambruscos but uh but for me when i have a mortadella and a gnocco frito and parmigiano like it's the only wine you could be offering me Cruperolo. no i want a lambrusco
1: all right well now i got that in my mind that's that's, that's what i'm going to work with but like that raises an issue I'm an old guy, baby boomer. We have, there's this legacy of bad wines of Bolas, Suave and sweet, fizzy, sweet Lambrusco. It wasn't even Lambrusco. And everybody talks about, well, those categories have been poisoned or damaged from all that. Why do those things have any salience in today's? world which is like two to three generations distant from that in the
2: 1970s oh you make a great point it's one that i hear all the time when i hear people saying oh you know it's not the suave it used to be and and like you say that statement doesn't make sense for you know the grand majority of the wine consuming market right they have no reference of what suave used to be or chianti when it was sold in the fiasco when the and there's no reference point but right uh, why i think it's So important to remember, you know, or and to talk about that is is that you know, like you say, washed out, sweet, fizzy, like all of these things come to an end, and it's because they're fundamental shortcuts, you know, they're things which aren't good for you as 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 a person, as a human, you know, yeah, too much sugar, too, you know, and they're things which have been produced in a way that has left some of the artisanship and some of that. some of that magic in the process uh, which is italian and so uh, the same way that bologna forgot about what mortadella was or you know cooked ham has nothing you know it's not prosciutto got, you know i mean it, it's just different and that's why driving back to really quality product artisan product and finding that those partners for our wines out there in the market is is my mission cool okay
1: um, <clears throat> I like to end my interviews with, uh, with a question out of all of the things that we just talked about. What's the big takeaway for listeners and recognize that most of the people who do listen are, are from the trade? What, what's the one practical thing they heard that they can put to use immediately from of what we discussed?
2: It, it, it's, it's a lofty statement for me to kind of prognosticate about you know, what, what people are going to I can tell you what, what I try to do, which is I try to really continue to bring uh, what excites and energizes me. And some people always say it's the story that sells the wine. And I, I think that the story is important. But what's super important to me, since I came from a production background and making wine, and, and I've had this epiphany with Italian culture and, and food, is that you can actually, uh, you know, as they say, costatare, uh, you can prove verify it, is the word. You can verify the story when you put it together with, artisan product that's that's local in its specialization, like our wines are. And so, you know, when you put an Amarone with a Parmigiano Reggiano, uh, you know, when you put a, 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 a San Sangiovese from Montalcino, from our San Polo, so if you put the Rosso di Montalcino with a, a Ragu di Coniglio, it's like you know, blows your mind, you know, the super Tuscans with with steak, you know, classic porterhouse.
1: That was rabbit sauce, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. Rabbit sauce. Rabbit sauce. Yeah. yeah. I know. I, I When you say rabbit sauce, it, some people it get... It doesn't uh, sound the same. <laughs> it doesn't sound nice. It doesn't sound like I'm a it's nice person. one of my favorite dishes at
1: eat e truly on 26th street in New York. And I didn't know it was rabbit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. You know, in Italy, they have to leave the head on the rabbit still um, in order to, when you purchase it so that you can actually see that it has the two incisors the front teeth because uh, a rabbit looks very similar to a cat and that's a hangover from world war ii so that cats couldn't be sold as rabbits in the butcher
1: oh my god i wish you hadn't shared that with me
2: (laughs) so when you buy a rabbit in italy the head has to still be on and uh I won't get even to what the people of Vincenza uh, are famous for, but you know, it's, it's part of that food and, and wine culture. They just, I, I love it. And so stay close to what energizes you. And maybe it is the oak and the wine, you know, far be it from me to say, but if you're selling Italian wine, you know a good healthy dose of Italian culinary culture and 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 food culture and history and art I mean that's the stuff that's the interesting stories in my opinion and and unfortunately, i still I don't watch soccer, and it's one of the things that really lacks in my sales pitches. I have no idea what Milan or Juventus did last week, but you know I get by because uh because i'm I'm really enthusiastic about and I'm really interested and about, you know, what our partners are doing out there. Wow.
1: So um, if people want to reach out to you, uh, where can they find more information on Allegrini? And if they want to do what, um, connect with Robin Shay, Shea, how would they reach you?
2: So, um, yeah, you know, Allegrini is, of course, our website, you know, um For the hospitality, if you ever want to visit that incredible Villa del Littore, that 15th century villa we were talking about, there are 11 rooms to B&B. And that is altogether.it. And you can go directly to the website there. San Polo uh, is a is beautiful estate in Montalcino. We also have hospitality facilities there. And that's uh, pojosanpolo.com. And uh, in Bulgari, Poggio Altesoro, which is uh, the estate Maria Lisa founded uh, with her daughters in, in Bulgari and her eldest brother, Walter, uh, that's www.poggioaltisoro.it. Pojo is P-O-G-G-I-O, Poggio tesoro And uh, she's just completing the hospitality facility there. Major benefit in Bulgari is uh, there's a fantastic pool at that estate. And there's kind of a dunking pool in Montalcino as well. But when the Bulgari guest house gets finished, you know, kind of like our wines, these aren't hotels, right? These are little B&Bs you know, maybe that's even a stretch. They're just guest houses. You know, it's anywhere from five to 11 rooms for you to come and stay. We can book them out to you. You know, you will be given a key almost Airbnb style, but man, you know, when you dig into these local little jewels, you know, the the food of Montacino, the the incredible shellfish and, and seafare of Bulgari with those super Tuscan wines. And then, you know, the Cheeses and the Mountain Fair and, of course, you know, La Arena de Verona, right? Come in the summer and go and see an opera season in, in downtown Verona. Yeah, I, that's one thing that's on my bucket list.
1: I've been to the arena and been to a couple of parties in the arena, but I haven't seen an opera there yet. Seems to always come in the fall, not in the summer.
2: Well, Marlisa, she sits on the board of the arena. She sits on the board of a number of trade associations. And uh, and kind of she she was just nominated as a Cavaliere di Lavoro, so she was just basically knighted by the president of the Italian Republic because she is this incredible ambassador to all that is that is Italian, and uh, it's why well, I, I you know I love love her for it, and you know we'll continue to kind of be her prophet as long as as she'll have me, and um, you know come and stay at our estates or come hook up with us sometime, and and you know live live it how the Allegrini. Uh, show it. And I think it's it's a great way to get to know the country. I
1: love it. So we're speaking this week with Robin Shea, the Export Manager uh, or Director of um, Allegrini. And uh, it was a very interesting conversation. I want to thank you for your time. It's always fun talking with you, Robin. And for our listeners, tune in next week and we'll have another interesting guest on Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. And thank you
2: again, Robin. Thank you, Stephen. Always great to chat.
0: hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the wine to wine business forum 2022 this year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on november 7th and 8th 2022 in verona italy remember tickets are on sale now so for more information please visit us at wine wine.net